Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. And I think as believers, we always, from time to time, think of the topic of assurance. We talk about it in our small groups. We discuss it all the time. We love the idea. We love the assurance that God offers. But sometimes people scratch their head and go, hmm, do I really, am I, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? And Scott Hubbard is with me today to talk about that very topic. He's written a brilliant article on it in DesiringGod.org. You can always head over there to DesiringGod.org. And the name of the article is, Am I Real? A Basic Guide to Christian Assurance. Scott, welcome. Well, it's good to be with you, Bill. Thank you. So this is a big topic because I know I hear from listeners all the time Hmm. that they wonder about their assurance. And I always assure them that their assurance is solid. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there, now you take over. Yeah, well, yeah, it is a big topic. And at least in my own experience, one that I don't uh, hear talked about, uh, it's it's not talked about too much, I don't think. And at least depending on the circle, the Christian circle or church that you grow up in, it might just be assumed that all Christians always have assurance and uh, you may not have heard someone address the topic of doubting your salvation, or if they did bring it up, maybe not in a very robust or in-depth way. And so as a young Christian myself, um, back in 2008, it wasn't too long after becoming a Christian that I started feeling these doubts about, um, wait, am I really a Christian? And it was a bewildering journey to figure out where do I turn to even get get clarity on what is going on. So it's been it's been a journey for me and one that I've um, realized is a really big topic. Uh, not only because I think probably every Christian at some point will face some level of doubt about whether they are really whether they really belong to Jesus, but also because the Bible addresses it in so many ways. And uh, as we'll talk about today, it's also a bit of a complex topic, and so we need to talk about it with care. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into, if you would like to, go to the places in Scripture where we learn about our assurance. Sure. I mean, in one sense, there are, you know, these individual verses that perhaps a lot of us are familiar with, like the Apostle John. I know this is one of the first verses that I learned as a new Christian. Um, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Mm, so, yeah, it's yeah, it's glorious yeah. that you may know that you have it. There have been periods in in the church in church history where um, even you know the the Christian leaders have uh, taught something something below. I think what the Apostle John says there, mm-hmm. and most Christian people did not live with any kind of sense of assurance, any kind of knowledge that they have eternal life. But here's John saying, "No, you can know." That when you die, you're going to heaven. You can lay yourself down to sleep tonight, knowing that if for some reason you die in the night, 
that you will wake up in the presence of Jesus. Yeah. I think we should pause the show and do cartwheels. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is right. the That's happiest right. news ever. It really is. It's it's part of what actually, you know, speaking of cartwheels, it's part of what made Martin Luther say that he wanted to stand on his head for joy. Right. Um, to, because we can know right now, right in the middle of our ongoing battle against sin and our on, the ongoing assaults we feel from the devil um, and the suffering that we face in this world, you, there is the possibility of a rock-solid assurance. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there are those individual verses like that one. But then there's just the, in, one, in another sense, the whole Bible, uh, almost every book you look in, you can see God moving toward, toward this end of assuring his people. The very idea of a covenant in Scripture is, is, is a means of assurance. It is God coming down on our level, so to speak, to make promises to us and to commit himself to us, to pledge himself to us, and to say, I will be this kind of God for you. Um, assurance is woven into the very name of God that we see in Exodus 34. You know, when God passes before Moses, what does he say? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which is his name geared to say, you can, you can trust me. You can be, you can be safe with me if you have your faith in me. I, this is the kind of God that I am. And we could go all, all through scripture of just the various ways that God makes his promises, delivers promises to us to calm our anxious hearts and to say that, yes, it is possible and you can know that you are in my good favor. Mm-hmm. I love the quote by D.A. Carson, a Christian believer's confidence that he or she is in right standing with God and that this will issue in ultimate salvation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's just a basic understanding of assurance that you can know right now, I'm in right standing with God and I know what the future is going to hold. Mm-hmm. I'll be with yeah. you in heaven. Um, Scott Hubbard is my guest. And Scott, I, I do know there's... Uh, professing Christians out there that say, well, that's just really not the way it works. If you are caught up in some sin and it's unrepented at the end of your life, you may not have the happiest outcome. Hmm. So I think we need to make a distinction here between um, the Christian's salvation or the Christian's justification, to get more specific, God's once-for-all verdict mm-hmm. over a Christian that says you're not guilty in Christ. You're, there's therefore now no condemnation for you, Romans 8, 1. So there's that on the one hand, and that is when, that, when God delivers that verdict, it never changes. There's no talk in Scripture of someone becoming unjustified right. who has been justified. So we need to have that category really stable. That, that's, um, that's unchanging. That is secure. But then on the other hand... There's this subjective sense of assurance that is not stable and that is not as secure, like our own sense of our justification is not as stable as our justification, if that makes Agreed. sense. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Positionally. And that's right. But we are justified and but internally we feel Yeah. Am I yeah, good we enough? Can go through seasons where we're, no. where we're unsure. And so um even though, like, no one, no Christian, <laughs> to put it lightly, would ever want to end their life walking in a pattern of unrepentant sin, um, merely to say that someone has uh, has died with sin unrepented of um, is not going to be the infallible guide to whether they were justified or not. Right. It's going to take into account the whole life um, right. and what this person believed and 
and those sorts of things as well. But in that moment, that person may die without a real strong assurance that they belong to God because, as perhaps we'll talk about, walking in a pattern of unrepentant sin is um, incompatible with a high, strong level of assurance. Mm-hmm. Scott Hubbard is my guest. He wrote an article at DesiringGod.org. You can go check it out because all the scripture that we're going to be talking about today is included in this uh, article. It's called Am I Real? A Basic Guide to Christian Assurance. I always recommend you heading over to DesiringGod.org. Scott and his uh, other colleagues over there are brilliant. So thanks again for being here as we talk about assurance. Mm-hmm. Many, many struggle with the idea of it. And um, even you as a young believer, uh, Scott said you had your own issues. Um, and what what brought that on? What caused it, you think? Yeah, what, what started you think? it? You know, I talk in the article about the various obstacles or enemies to Christian assurance. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned three in particular that I think are the three big ones. Um, Satan, sin, and then a fallen psychology. And what I mean by that third one is just a, a distinct temperament that is more given to doubt, more given perhaps to um, depression or melancholy, more given to kind of an obsessive introspection that can often generate, often generate doubt. Um, And I I do think that something along those lines is what was going on with me as a a young believer, because I couldn't uh, and of course, the, the those three are intertwined. Um, it could be that the devil is using something like, uh, you know, it, um, in league with our fallen psychology to create more and more doubts. But um, I couldn't discern any distinct, um, blatant sin that was, you know, unrepented of in right. my life or something like that. Though I was, you know, looking and trying to pay careful attention. So I think there's there there can just be a mysterious. Um, internal quality to some of us that we just end up going down this road more often than others. We mm-hmm. just, for one reason or another, the ways that we are broken, we can, we can doubt more. We can struggle more to have the same kind of confidence that other people seem to have more often. It's interesting you bring that up. It's almost like, I think you said a melancholy disposition. Right. Hey, do you want to go to the beach today? Oh, I don't know. I, I could get sunburned. <laughs> you know, and in my case, I would. But yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, I mean, there's there's a person that might look at a lot of things very negatively. That's right. So there's a, have... uh, a, quote, a quote from Sinclair Ferguson in the article. He says, um, a melancholic disposition creates obstacles to the enjoyment of assurance, partly because it creates obstacles to the enjoyment of everything. Wow, that's a well said. And uh, or a, a, another older writer, Thomas Brooks, he just talked about you know the, the souls of some where it's like they're wearing sunglasses and this dark tinted sunglasses, and so no matter where you look, even if you're looking at the sun, it might look dark. Mm-hmm. And whereas that's not the case to the same degree for others. Yeah, that Sinclair Ferguson quote is very interesting. I might scratch his name out and write mine in there. <laughs> I'm just thinking, because that was yeah. a lot of wisdom right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to have said something that smart. <laughs> just doesn't happen, but, you know, at least I try, right? Yeah, that's right. All right, we're talking about the topic of assurance with uh, Scott Hubbard. Always glad to have Scott here. He is uh, over at DesiringGod.org. You can head over there, DesiringGod.org. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Scott and as we continue our discussion on assurance in just a minute.
like that music. It says assurance, doesn't it? Nice and happy <laughs> violins. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, Scott Hubbard is my guest. We're talking about assurance today. He's written a great article at DesiringGod.org. You can go check it out. The article is uh, called Am I Real? A Basic Guide to Christian Assurance. So uh, right before the break, we were talking about sin, Satan, and psychology. We touched on psychology a little bit. Can we discuss sin and Satan and how that contributes to assurance? Yeah, I'll start with with Satan. Um, one of the titles that we read about of the devil in Revelation 12 is the accuser of our brothers, the accuser of our brothers. And you see that uh, portrayal of Satan throughout the scriptures as well. He is, along with being a tempter, along with being a liar and a murderer, he is an accuser. And it's fascinating to see, as I read in one classic book on assurance called Religious Affections, that even in the life of Jesus, the devil tried to sow doubt. So you remember in the wilderness temptations, one of the things he says where he begins the first two temptations by saying, if you are the son of God. Yeah. And wow. Jesus has just come from his baptism where the father has spoken over him. Wow. This is my beloved son. And then the devil, in light of that, comes and tries to sow a seed of doubt, saying, if this is true of you, why don't you go make bread? Why don't you throw yourself off the temple? And so if the devil assaulted even the assurance of Jesus, <laughs> then you can be sure that he's going to assault our own. And Scott, what about the timing of that too? How interesting, you know, after that moment where Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism and the dove descends and the voice of God says, this is my yep. son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. He's then led into the desert and after 40 days confronts Satan and Satan's questioning him. It's just interesting, the proximity of those two occasions. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And I think shows that even after a, an experience, like surely the ba- his own baptism uh, would have been, even after an experience of great, deep, Spiritual mm-hmm. assurance, you can go into a place of doubt, um, be afflicted by the devil in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. And then sin, um, it, I think it's helpful here to, to come up with an example. So let's think about the Apostle Peter. We talked a little bit before just about how uh, there's a difference between the stable, secure justification that a believer has and their own sense of that. And so I want to imagine Peter in the moments, the day after Good Friday, where he denied Jesus. If you look on the one hand at his um, security from God's point of view, nothing changed. Like he was just as secure in the grasp of Jesus as he was on Thursday Mm -hmm. before he had denied him. Mm -hmm. God's purpose for Peter had not changed. But oh, did Peter's sense of his purpose for him change. On Holy Saturday, as Peter is thinking about what he had done in denying Jesus three times, surely. He did not feel a great deep sense of God's favor over him. Not until he had that encounter with Jesus on the on the shores of the sea where Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he told him, yes, Lord, I love you. He's restored. So once that happens, once there's um, forgiveness granted, forgiveness received, repentance, restored fellowship now, now Peter's assurance can be back where it was. Not his not his stability and his justification before God. That was never in jeopardy, but his own personal sense of it. Mm-hmm. Scott, I'm thinking even of when Jesus appeared to the 11 in the upper room Yeah. after the resurrection, how joyful they were to see him, yet how terrified they might have been. A, he just shows up, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walks through, comes through a door 
without it opening, right? Yep. And Peter is probably maybe cowering, thinking, ooh, I just denied you three times. Yeah, that's right. And you see a wonderful window into the heart of Jesus yeah, and how he responds to Peter. He shows up and says, peace be with you. Peace he be with you. He gives that shalom peace the minute he shows up. Yeah, that's Beautiful right. Beautiful thing. And one of the things in the Gospel of Mark says is that the angels tell the women at the tomb, uh, go tell the disciples and Peter what right. you've seen. So, you yeah. know, just points him out in particular. Yeah. Jesus wanted Peter to know he's been raised. Yeah. Fantastic. And the, so there's something similar, a similar dynamic, even if, um, you know, our own sins are different than Peter's. There can be a similar dynamic um, when, let's say, just a particularly grievous sin that uh, disrupts our communion, our our near, our sense of nearness to God, or a pattern of unrepentant sin. Those things can have a way of diminishing our own sense of God's favor, our own sense of our salvation. And it's, it's, um, it's right to say that they should diminish it. Yeah. Uh, just as, you know, in, in a marriage, it's, it wouldn't be right if a husband is being un, unfaithful to his wife for him to feel a great sense of assurance that their relationship is great and that, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's in a great spot with his wife. He shouldn't feel that. Mm-hmm. He should feel unsettled into repentance and then when fellowship is restored, when forgiveness is granted, then then a deeper sense of subjective assurance can be had. And there's a similar dynamic going on in our own relationship with God. And by no means, however, does that mean that every time we sin, it's a, a diminishment of our, you know, we have to go back to the beginning and we're, we lose our assurance every time we sin. No, that's not the case. Uh, we can come and receive forgiveness right away. But there is something unique to sins that... Um, uh, reach a higher degree just in terms of their high-handedness or the, pa- the the length of time that we go without repenting if we're hardening our hearts against mm-hmm. God, that can really do damage to our sense of uh, His grace on us. I think that principle we understand pretty clearly, pretty easily, Scott. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I mean, if you go a full year without brushing your teeth or flossing, you would not go into the dentist's office with a lot of confidence, <laughs> right? No, you wouldn't. That's you a great would, analogy. You would feel, ooh, I could be in big trouble today, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, perfect analogy. Well, maybe rewrite the article then and stick that analogy in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should go. Yeah, maybe, maybe we just find a way to insert Yeah, that. we just, you know, readjust a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives who reveals to us who, in fact, we are. We yeah. belong to him. I'm sure you're going to get to that as we wrap up our time here. Yeah, that's right. So I mentioned three enemies that are... Looking at scripture, some of the most common enemies we face with our assurance, Satan, sin, and a fallen psychology. And to each of those three, the um, the Holy Spirit offers a counterpart. So to the enemy of Satan, he offers the promises of God, and particularly the promises of the gospel. To the um, enemy of sin, he offers our own ongoing progressive growth in Christ's likeness, our sanctification, and then to the enemy of fallen psychology, he he offers what Paul calls the witness of the Spirit in Romans 8. And so, yeah, perhaps we could just say a brief word about each of those. That'd be great. I'm taking notes. <laughs> so the, the promises, and this is the bedrock, this is the you foundation. you got to talk slower, I type with two fingers. <laughs> All right, go ahead. The promise. <laughs> I got to speed that, it up okay, a little. Okay, okay, <laughs> gotcha. Um, so 
The promises of Jesus are where assurance finds finds its foundation. We can look in the book of Romans for this. The most famous, one of the best passages on assurance in the Bible is the end of Romans chapter 8, yep. um, where what Paul is highlighting there is all that Jesus is for us because of his death, because of his resurrection, and because of his ascension and his current interceding for us at the right hand of God. He says, uh, you know, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So he's he's assuming there that Christians often um, perhaps are going to feel a charge against them, but perhaps from their own conscience, perhaps from the devil. And now he's trying to reason with that and answer back to it and say, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And then he just goes through this list of glorious realities about Jesus being the one who died, Jesus being the one who was raised, Jesus being the one who is interceding for us. And so what that says is that um, at the ground level of our assurance, what we need to do is when we stand in the courtroom and there is Satan just leveling his accusations against us and there's our conscience feeling weighed down by our ongoing imperfection, our ongoing battles with sin, the immediate first step that we take is to look totally away from ourselves, to look at Jesus there standing at the right hand of the Father with nail-pierced hands, with his own gospel to give us, his own promises to give us, and to believe that because of what he has done, we can be totally secure before him. So God's promises are the foundational means of our assurance. And perhaps just one other quick window there. Back a few chapters earlier, Romans chapter 5, Paul gives this great warm statement of assurance where he says, hope, Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is a picture of assurance, knowing that hope will not put you to shame and you have God's love in your heart. And then in the very next verse, he gives us the way that we get there. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So he directs your minds directly to the cross of Jesus, which is just a little, uh, that's, that's the move that Paul makes um, to say that if you want to have your heart filled with the assurance of Jesus, mm-hmm. then fill your mind with the cross of Jesus. Wow. So good. Scott, I feel like I say a penny for your thoughts and then I get back two cents. I make I make money on you <laughs> because the payback is great. Well, praise the Lord for that. And yep. uh, I'm grateful for the book of Romans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am too. I am too. Thank you for that, that insight and thank you yeah. for uh, being on the show today. If you want to uh, see this article and have a copy of it yourself, all you have to do is go to desiringgod.com. Dot org, and then go to the search engine and you can type in Am I Real? And the article will come up written by Scott Hubbard. He's an editor over at DesiringGod.org. And in all the scripture references that he made today, if you're driving in your car and you think, oh, I wish I would have been able to write those down, trust me, they're all here. So we'll take a little break and we'll be right back with lots more. Let's get it started. 
Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Bible study with friends, my favorite activity. I'm so glad to have Dr. Greg Heddington back on the show. We're going to continue our study on First Peter. We're in chapter two. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Let's uh, let's dig into one Peter chapter two, verses eleven to twenty-five. All right. Well, welcome to our third lesson in our study of selections uh, from First Peter. As we look at First Peter two eleven twenty-five to review. Uh, the Peter's two letters are called circular letters, which mean they were passed around to various churches in the Middle East. His given name was Simon, which means listener. But after a dramatic transformation, Jesus changes his name to Peter. And in Greek, that's Petros, which means Greek. Uh, excuse me, which means rock. But it's also where we derive our word petroleum. So Peter and Paul were the two leading apostles in the first century, as Paul ministered primarily to Gentiles, while Peter's letters are generally targeted to the Jews who had become Christ's followers. Peter was the first apostle to fail in his faith, so he was more attuned to recall his failure, which made him more merciful to others who failed in their faith. Because of that failure, in our last lesson, in chapter 1, we talked about Peter being the apostle of hope. And the theme today is submission to the Lord. So uh, submission in the life of a believer is certainly not a popular or a sexy topic in these days of rebellion and deconstruction of conventional standards and the desire for personal fulfillment, but it is an important topic. After all, the key verse in the Gospel of Mark in Mark 10:45, when Jesus, speaking of himself, says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Peter applies that theme of submission to the life of a believer as, one, a citizen, number two, a worker, number three, a marriage partner, and number four, a member of the church community. Again, what is a church? We are the church. So every time you hear the word church, for the rest of our life, we remember that we are either part of the church gathered, maybe on Sunday morning, or the church scattered during the rest of the week. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, submission. Now, what does submission mean? Submission does not mean slavery or subjugation. Rather, it's the recognition of God's authority over our lives. The Lord wants each of us to exercise godly authority in his world. But before we can exercise authority, we must be under authority, his authority. The Apostle Peter lays out a number of things regarding how Christ's followers whom he calls exiles, aliens, and strangers, how believers are to live in submission. We are, quote, resident aliens because our true citizenship is in heaven, and yet we live now in this existence on earth. Peter tells us we are to live such lives in submission to God so that non-believers will see our example of good works and give glory to God. Peter's echoing the exact words of Jesus, which Peter must have heard Jesus say, over and over in his teaching. What were those words of Jesus? Quote, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5.16. From a verse in the greatest sermon ever given, found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is a collection of Jesus' greatest hits, in other words, teachings during his ministry, which Jesus probably repeated over and over in his ministry, not just once. 
So the bottom line in living a righteous life is to live in submission to our Lord in all aspects of life. In other words, how would he want us to be obedient? Roman numeral two, submission to governing authorities. Now, Peter gives some challenging instruction about how we as resident aliens are to submit to governing authorities. As we mentioned before, Peter wrote these words during the reign of the cruel Emperor Nero, and these words mirror exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13, verse 1, when Paul writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Now, how do you like those verses? Well, you may not like them too much, and I would say, Obeying government authority is not always popular, as we've seen in the U.S., but there are eight other passages in Scripture which say that God approves of believers disobeying the government, but only when obedience to government would mean disobeying God. In fact, there were times when God raised leaders to rebel against the government, which was putting itself in the place of God, by legitimizing immoral positions contrary to the clear positions of God, and therefore, civil disobedience was warranted. Now, what were these leaders called who followed God's instructions to rebel? They were called judges. Some examples of them are in Exodus, chapters 1 to 14, when the Jews are enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Judges, chapter 2, verse 16, also refers to the times when God raised up various judges in the Old Testament to militarily fight against the evil governments, even though those governments, uh, those battles were temporary. Now, (laughs) those battles were temporary because when Israel's record against his enemies is something like 87 to 0, the battles will not go on for a very long time. So God permitted those oppressions on his people because they had all turned from God and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Yahweh appointed military judges to deliver his people. After all, God was Israel's ultimate judge and deliverer. These judges were some pretty tough characters who, who without the protection of God, would probably have been in prison. A few of the warrior judges were Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, and Barak, all of whom had serious personal faults. But... They were used by the Lord for his ultimate purpose. Yet there was one exception to this list, Deborah, who not only did double duty as a judge and prophetess, but also was the most righteous of all judges. Now, here's a question. Would we have followed God any better than the Jews did? I mean, in fact, we are God's people, and we we would have done, sorry, but no better. Why do I say that? Because when people are honest, they admit that they are even more selfish and more sinful than other people think they are. The fact is, humans are just born selfish, ever since our first relatives, Adam and Eve. Now, occasionally, we do hear people admit the truth about their sinful nature, which is always kind of a a delight. For example, I recently heard someone say, when I get a temporary job at an office, I go into the job saying to myself, I'm a pretty good person, but later when I leave that job, I think to myself, 
no, I'm pretty sure I'm a murderer. <laughs> well, well, that's honest. And we can't point our finger at anyone else when it comes to falling short, because we do it all the time. We are called to be subject to the government by Scripture. The Greek word for subject to is the word uptosis, which literally means to come underneath and lift up. And the two scriptural principles regarding the government are, number one, the government is God's idea in order to be a check on human sin. And number two, God is sovereign over all things, and that includes government. So here's a question. Are we always to go along with what the government says? No, not when they insist that we follow moral positions contrary to the clear positions of God and insist that they are spokesmen for God when they do it. Or as John Calvin in the 16th century said, we obey the government as long as it does not demand we do what is counter to the gospel. And what is counter to the gospel? Well, besides living immorally, if we are forbidden from sharing and living the good news, that would clearly be counter to the gospel. Well, as we look at many other countries, and we know how oppressive some of these governments are on their people, yet somehow in the mystery of God's economy, all governments are ultimately appointed and controlled by him. I don't really understand that, but check out Daniel 2.21 and Romans 13, just for examples. And one of the greatest mysteries is how two of the most repressive regimes, Afghanistan and Iran, have had, in spite of the suffering that Christ followers have gone through there, they've had the most dynamic growth in Muslims turning to Jesus in the entire world. It's also no surprise that many believers in South Korea, who, as you know, live just a few miles south of communist North Korea, that so many believers in South Korea pray that the USA will go through suffering. Now, why would they pray that? So that Americans may be totally switched on to follow Jesus as our Lord and not assume that we will always be free to practice our faith. As far as our leaders, 1 Timothy 2.3 says we are to intercede in prayer for our leaders because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. So we pray for our leaders, not because they necessarily always deserve it, but because it pleases God, and he wants us to be obedient to him above all things. Roman number three, suffering. Now, this is a big theme in Peter's letters, suffering with hope. Suffering is something which Americans understand they might endure for maybe a while, but we hope it's temporary. After all, God would not want us to live in this, quote, Christian nation to suffer too much now, would he? Well, however, we all have friends or family members, and perhaps we have suffered at times physically, financially, or emotionally. And in the midst of suffering, we wonder when it will end, if ever. The Apostle Peter is talking about several kinds of suffering, and one of those is Roman numeral 3a, unjust suffering. At the time Peter wrote his letter, about one-third of Roman Empire's residents lived in various degrees of servitude. Yes, there's also human trafficking in the world today. In fact, according to the Human Trafficking Institute, 
25 million people in the world are still enslaved, which includes both the sex trade and the labor trade, and just under 2 million of them are here now in the U.S. Now, that's one extreme of what Americans term as suffering. On a much less extreme case, it's almost laughable by comparison, but I feel like I suffer a little when I have to stand in line too long at a store to buy something. I mean, I may have to wait for as long as up to 10 minutes before I get to the cashier. After all, we Americans are used to getting what we want, when we want it, or we feel like we're suffering. As a a great man once said, the greatest form of suffering for most of us in this country is being inconvenienced. But in my better moments, I consider how people in the majority world live in the non-Western world. Now, there are dozens of countries who suffer daily from scarcity of food, government corruption, and deadly violence. In fact, we could look at areas of our own cities for those elements. What is different is when we see the faithful attitude of those who suffer but are committed to the Lord. And we're familiar with the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 when he tells us that the Christ-like way is to, to live as rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, we might think to ourselves, those are charming words, and I'll try to do that sometime when I'm feeling good. <laughs> but let me mention some believers in just a minute after the break who uh, actually are standing up and living for Jesus in the midst of tremendous suffering. I love that. All right, we're talking to Dr. Greg Heddington, continuing our study on First Peter. After a short break, we'll be right back. Dr. Greg Heddington, we're discussing First Peter chapter two, and right before the break, Greg, you were talking about some amazing people that that have stand that stand up for for Jesus. Yeah, I, it's really amazing, Bill. There are some believers I have visited and known for the past twenty three years, and they've lived in desperate conditions for the past sixty three years. And what is it what is it that sets them apart? Well, I'm speaking of Cuba, and although I still cannot get my mind around what it would be like to live in Cuba. Here's some of the things that they and, and many other countries face on a daily basis. My intention in sharing these things is not so we can say, ain't it awful, but rather to be inspired by Christ's followers who respond to their desperate situation. When a father wakes up in Cuba, he knows that the only hope he has to purchase milk for his children is if he stands in line from 5 to 11 o'clock. Now, that's not like my 10 minutes of frustration waiting in line in America. That is six hours of waiting in line outside the store. No matter matter what job you have in Cuba, you will be paid $25 per month by the communist government, unless you're a doctor or engineer, and then you get the whopping salary of $35 per month. Now, you can't exist on so little, so you have to have some kind of a side hustle in the black market, which is the other form of economy. You rarely will live with any kind of air conditioning. And you might have an old bicycle as a means of transportation because few people have cars. 
Everyone you know has some kind of sickness, and everyone knows a number of people have died of COVID because the only vaccine Cuba has is produced by their government, and its effectiveness is about less than 50%. Cubans still wait to find out the fate of the four to 600 people put in prison for protesting against the government this past year, and they continue living without any kind of medicine, including aspirin, unless they're taken to the hospital while keeping an eye on the weather for the next hurricane. I think we get the point. This is how many people live today in the world. But what is germane to us in this lesson is how Christ's followers respond so differently to these difficulties. Now, you can ask my wife to to clarify this, but here's a typical text from our Cuban friends. Dear Carrie and Greg, we are so happy that we are a family united by the blood of Christ. How are you? We are fine, and we always pray for you. My two aunts, grandmother and mom, are now out of the hospital after 12 days on ventilators. Praise God. I am also better now. There are many things happening in our country, but the Lord makes a way through his peace. All adversities lead me to believe even more in the Lord and how much I love him. Please pray for my town. There are many people with COVID. Thanks for every prayer you have for us. Receive the greetings of brothers and sisters in Ciego de Avila. Our God is always faithful. Hugs and love. Also, could you please pray that the hurricane that is blowing toward our island will miss it. Now, what do you notice about that text? I notice there are no complaints, just a newsy, encouraging update sharing their life and their dependency on the Lord to provide. So here's a question for us. Do we follow the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And I notice he does not say give thanks for all circumstances, because we don't pray for all things, but give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That is a challenge for me on a daily basis. It reminds me to not complain. Now, compared to the way so many people around the world are struggling through life, and of course right now we're thinking about Ukraine, in comparison, I'm just living another day in paradise. And as a believer in trusting Hebrews 13.5, when it says, God will never leave us or forsake us. Roman number four, freedom in Christ. I have no idea what it's like to live as a minority. I am a white male in America. I've always been a white male from America. It says so on my birth certificate. And as a white American male, I am part of the majority race of people who live in America. And I have not had to go through the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, even as white women in America have gone through, much less another race of people. And although I've spent many years working with and alongside people of color, I still have no real understanding of what it would be like to literally live as a minority, even though I've talked to my friends about what it has been like for them. As Peter writes these letters, he is living as a double minority in the Roman Empire. He is, number one, a Jew, so he's considered a second-class citizen by Rome. And number two, he is a Christ follower, which makes him even more suspicious to the majority of the Romans who believe in many gods. Even so, Peter reminds all believers that they are under God's authority as servants. Well, but what about freedom? Does he mean as under God's authority that we are to eliminate freedom from our life? No, Peter says in verse 16 that we are to live as people who are free, yet living as servants of God. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, three things at least. Number one, believers have freedom from the crushing power of sin in which we were once enslaved. Number two, believers have freedom from guilt since our sins have been forgiven thanks to the cross. And number three, believers have freedom from the impossible obligation of trying to earn God's favor by obeying rules. Okay, well, regarding rules, here's a question. If it's impossible to follow the law perfectly, why did God even give the Jews those 635 laws in the Old Testament? Excellent question. Here are four brief responses. Number one, God gave us laws to show us we will fail and can never earn our way into God's favor by works alone. Instead, we all need a Savior to receive his grace. Number two, God gave us laws so we'll not feel superior to others because we think we're better at following the rules than they are. It's like, I don't do more things than you don't do. So therefore, we're all to live lives humbly and in submission to him. Number three, gave us rules. God gave us rules because they're simply a better way to live more righteously and for the joy of doing what is right for holy living. And here's one more. Number four, until we understand how loved we are by God, think of what Jesus did for us. Then we will not understand why we would want to not be good and why we would not want to turn from emptiness of sin. So here's the equation. Christ followers are free, yet paradoxically we are to be submissive to him and we are to live lives of humble service for him. So to express it in one sentence, God's grace comes first and then we receive his laws to follow him. In other words, his, he rescues us first, and that precedes rules. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather be under the living care of the creator than uh, serve him and try to, be a ta- try to be autonomous, out in the world alone, with no protection, no power to overcome temptation, and with no hope for a better life. But many people follow that wide road. And in John Milton's masterpiece, Paradise Lost, here are the words. Anybody, I don't know if you ever read that. It's a, it's a long book. It's lengthy. It's basically a long poem. Yeah, then I for sure didn't read it. Well, I, I admit it was a struggle, but I got through the first three pages. So here are the words Milton puts into Satan's mouth to justify why he will never submit to God. It's pretty chilling. So here it is in one of the most well-known quotations in literature. The character of Satan says this, It is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Now, friends, that would be unimaginable. But that's how Satan will never change his mind. Mm -hmm. Our freedom in Christ is always conditioned by our responsibility to our Lord. In other words, Christian freedom does not mean we are free to do only as we like, Christian freedom means being free to do as we ought. Let me say it again. Christian freedom does not mean we are free to do only as we like. Christian freedom means being free to do as we ought. And I want to comment on verse 24, which says, By his wounds we are healed. Uh, Peter's referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. And I know some people that take those words to think it has to do with physical healing. But yet in this context, it does refer to Jesus's forgiveness of our sins that that um, Peter's emphasizing. 
So, St. Paul addresses our situation in Romans seven twenty four when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, what could possibly compare to having a friendship with our loving Creator? Nothing. And the Lord wants us to pray for all our needs, and we know I pray for physical needs. But when it comes down to it, think of the relief of physical pain compared to the gift of Jesus' forgiveness. The gift of his forgiveness of sins, which brings us eternal life. And when we pray for that, and he relieves us of that sin, that wins by a million miles. Oh, boy, Greg, you are so right about that. It is wonderful to pray for uh, physical healing, but nothing like getting healing from our spiritual disease that will, um, uh, that has condemned us. Amen. Yeah, yeah. That letter you uh, sent, that text you sent from your friends in Cuba is, was unbelievable. Yeah, and that's real typical, Bill. It's just like that or shorter or longer. Oh, it's very inspiring. Thank you so much for the study on, on First Peter. Just loving it. You bet. Yeah. Have a great rest of the day. Dr. Greg Heddington, once again, has been my guest. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.